Okay. <laughs> uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, called Amazing Grace, and maybe you've heard the song. But uh, there's, this, there's this idea that we've trying to, been ch- we're trying to chew on for the last couple of weeks. We started with the week of prayer and fasting. The idea was we were working through all these different kinds of grace, and that we have to describe it in so many different ways because it's such a powerful, complicated word that just takes, I don't know, a lot of different angles to understand. And so we went through it in our prayer and fasting week, and then we've built a series off of it, uh, just trying to get into, trying to understand what it's for, what it's trying to do, and what it's trying to accomplish, and the beauty of it. So we're spending some time in it. And last week, we talked about justifying grace, and there's all these complicated words that we add to the beginning of grace to try to sum up what it is. And last week, we talked about justifying grace, and just to catch you up, it's the idea that uh, just, we're justified means that we've been made right in the sight of God. So think about like a courtroom. You, you've been declared, like not guilty because of what Jesus has done. So if we were to use justifying grace, if there's like a courtroom analogy, today we're talking about sanctifying grace, which is another word that we never use in everyday life. But uh, it's important to understand. So sanctification, just as a crude definition for today, would be uh, the act of having it's almost like rehabilitation. It's not a perfect synonym, but it's the idea that you're declared innocent and righteous, but there's some stuff in your life. There's junk in your life that may be led to you being on trial, as it were, and uh, the, the Holy Spirit would long to remove those things and the sin and the gunk and all the stuff that just gets in the way of us living holy lives. So sanctification would be the process of removing sin and, uh, or rather letting God remove sin would be a better way of saying it. And so we're going to talk about sanctification today. And I was trying to think of a good synonym for sanctification to have it try to make sense because we don't use that word a lot. And uh, one of the words that came to mind was, was, was therapy, but it doesn't really work either. But it's still this idea that you're trying to, there, there's a, if you were to go to therapy or to be rehabilitated, there's an awareness that I want to live differently. And it's like, I, I, there's stuff that I would love to not live in and have and be in bondage to now here's the problem with the word therapy. It kind of falls apart a little bit because it's a little too introspective and fully doesn't grasp sanctification at all. Um, this synonym won't make sense to you until later in the sermon, but I'd like to just put it in your mind as a thing to re- remember. When you think sanctification, think of the word preparation. Now, that might not make sense right now, but that's going to be the point of the next 26 minutes. So think sanctification. Think preparing yourself for something or having God prepare you for something. So that's what we're going to work with. Um, Titus 2, this will be our scripture for today, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. I'm going to read it out. It's got a lot in it, and we'll work through it today. So, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all w- wickedness and to, purify, uh, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So you see this idea here in, um, in Titus is, uh, I mentioned this last week, but Titus was a book written by Paul to the, the, to the church there in a church um, in Crete, and it was kind of a hedonistic church, and it was really blending with society, and there wasn't a lot of holiness going on in that church. It was starting to really look a lot like culture, and just uh, a lot of sin was in the church, and it wasn't reflecting um, uh, the body of Christ very well. And so Paul's kind of 
uh, in, this, in this letter is really addressing the concept of sin. And you can see it here in this passage. It's like you're, sp- you're supposed to live this way, and it's supposed to look like this, and it's supposed to have this outward appearance. Like, think about the words that he's using. Like, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's kind of like, it's almost like a disciplinary dad kind of in this letter, saying like, say no to that. Don't stop it. Like, stop doing that. It's, it, there's, it's kind of black and white in a sense. And so that always causes attention in my heart when I hear um, these kinds of verses. Because, I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, uh, this is, I, I don't advise reading scripture this way, but it's what I fall into if I don't stay focused. I look for two things. I look for stuff to do, like what can I do now as a result of having read this? And if you're reading most of scripture, especially in the Old Testament, it's like, I don't know what to do. I just heard a story about some Israelites and I didn't, I don't know what to do. And so you just keep reading and hope that Someday, some chapter will have instructions in it, and they never come. And so, unless you read Proverbs every day. But I just, that, that's the thing I fall into most, is like, okay, what am I supposed to do? The second thing is, how's this going to benefit me? Like, what, how's this going to make my life better right now? And sure, there's going to be things to do. Like, there's lots of instructions in Scripture we can find. There's lots of good advice, all these sorts of things. And there's lots of you could treat it as a technique book for making your life smoother and more pious or more, I don't know, righteous to, to some standard of being good people. And uh, not that those are necessarily bad things, but uh, I miss sometimes the core of what's trying to be communicated because I'm just trying to find out what to do and try to ha- figure out how to live a smoother, more painless life. Which if you follow Jesus, like it's not, there's a whole bunch of things in that, like those, those aren't the promises. They're way better. So we're going to unpack that today. Um, so when I look at this, there's some pretty great stuff that it's asking us to do and some terrible things that it's asking us to say no to. Like, so be self-controlled. So this is like your personal life. When you're by yourself, and someone, I heard a quote once, is like you, who you are by yourself is who you really are in some ways. There's nobody's watching. And so there's this idea that self-controlled is a, is a really important aspect of like, Paul's like, be self-controlled. When you're on your own, that's really important. Like, have self-control. <laughs> and so that sounds great. I'd love to have self-control. Be upright. This is kind of the way people perceive you. Live an upright life. Have integrity. People are watching. Uh, represent, I don't know, represent us well. Um, and then godly, which would just be have God as the center of who you are. And Model your life after what he would do and those sorts of things. So these are great. It's great advice. Wouldn't that be nice? I'd love to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. <laughs> Why not? And then, uh, <laughs> but there's a, there's a wrong way. So sanctification isn't Paul going, okay, go do all that now. Go be that. Go. <laughs> go be sinless. Take my advice. It's a little bit more beautiful than that. And so there's a, there's a wrong way to understand sanctification of like, of grace, and uh, I'll say a bold thing, I don't think sinning less is the point of grace, the primary one anyway, it's a handy byproduct that I find often, <laughs> but it, it isn't the main point, sanctification isn't trying to just make our lives smoother because sin is a less ideal way of living, even though I'd argue that it is, so what do we do with this? These are, these, are, these are pretty clear instructions and pretty clear things that we're being asked to do. 
And I, when I read this just off the top, I, do, I did it again today, uh, to this week when I was reading this, being like, all right, well, I guess we're going to talk about how to be more this, this, and this. But instead, the, if, we, if we chew on this for a while, there's a, there's a really beautiful why that starts to emerge as we think about it as to why we would say no to ungodliness and how God's grace actually teaches us, as this verse says, teaches us to say no. And it's not just, wouldn't it be great if we were cleaner? And I think, that, I think the world has a perception of the church, and probably accurately so, um, because I think the church has this view of God a lot, is that God is upset by how yucky we are, and so then he had to do a whole bunch of really drastic things, like die and all this stuff, and to make us cleaner, because we're embarrassing him. You know, and there's dirt behind our ears, and he doesn't want to send us off to elementary school the next day looking like a bad parent or something. Like, there, we get this idea that he's just trying to make us cleaner. And then the world looks at the church, and the church usually magnifies their, you know, their inaccurate perceptions of who God is to the rest of the world, unfortunately. And the, the world looks at the church and goes, they just want me to be godly or say no to a bunch of things that I actually really enjoy and benefit me in lots of ways. So we're caught in this, what do we do with, hey, be good people? How do we redeem this? these instructions. So there's a complicated term I want to teach you today that I really like, that I use a lot, and you can impress all your friends with it. It's called moral therapeutic deism. You can put that, um, you can put that up there. So this is a really fancy, fancy way of saying how most of society treats God or the concept of, okay? And we're going to walk through these points because I'm, I was... Um, moral therapeutic deism, if you're in like theological circles or you go to like, you know, Bible school or any of those things, this is a no-no. This is bad theology. You're, God is not a therapist, and so you, we know this, but I'm reading these points, and I'm like, wow, I treat God this way a ton. So it was a little embarrassing. So let's work it through. This is what moral therapeutic deism means, and it's how society often views God when Scripture and who he is as, isn't understood properly. <clears throat> Point A, a God exists who created the world and watches over human life on earth. It's kind of like the big guy upstairs, you know? That people kind of have this vague concept of God up there. Yeah, I think he probably created things somehow, and I'm glad he's up there watching over us. You know, you can got to hear that in culture a lot. Uh, B, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. I feel like an elementary school teacher. Good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible. That's not bad. So the Bible's like a good book for all the good things and all the moral whatever. I think society would agree that the Bible has good morals. C, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. You know, we're wavering a little bit. I don't know. Now it starts to, oh, it's getting sketchy. D, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except to help with C. Does that make sense? So... God's up there, the big guy upstairs, and when I really need him, I might call on him because my life isn't as happy as it could be right now, and you seem to have some kind of power that I don't fully understand to help me with that. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you're tracking. Uh, point E, good people go to heaven when they die. So that's the, that's the general view of a distant God who wrote a manual on how to be a good person. And it's I don't know, you could, I, I just find I can live my life this way a lot. And I have this temptation, maybe you do too, to really depersonalize who God is. 
it's very convenient for me because there's a whole bunch of sin <laughs> that is actually deeply attractive and has a ton of benefits in the short term anyway. That it would be very handy if God was a big guy upstairs who only really cared when it was going really bad and that I don't actually have anyone to be unfaithful to in my sin. I don't, I, there's no one who's upset. <laughs> there's no one who wishes I wouldn't have. And so we abstract God to a therapist in the sky uh, until it gets really bad, of course, so that we can just live in this in-between, kind of flip-flopping between being rebellious and then being religious, you know, and uh, just kind of back and forth. And it's convenient to depersonalize him. I, I harped on this last week, but it, uh, Scripture goes to great length to say God our Savior appeared. It says it in this one too, doesn't it? Titus. Yeah, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is extremely important that, that, that uh, <laughs> we just forget this all the time, that our salvation was actually found in a person. And it's a very intimate thing. Salvation in Christianity is not found in a value set or in the ability to follow a path or in the ability to, I don't know, make it somehow by some definition, someone set. But salvation is possessed in a person. Like grace was extended to you by, by a person who wants to know you. And there's a deeply intentional, personal motivation behind the engine of our, like, what's the word? A reconciliation with him. It's a very personal thing. And it, we abstract it so often to the list of, a list of what we're supposed to do. So the, there's a way to read this verse, like many other verses, and just miss it and hear some stuff to do and then try harder. Uh, and um, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I... Man, this is a tension-filled thing to say, but I find uh, just having grace be about helping us sin less to not be a very compelling argument. Because I don't think that's what God is after. It's kind of the dirt behind the ears thing I was talking about with the, with the child. I just, there's not a lot of love in that. It's not, it's not the God I know. Like, does he want me to, does he not want me to be in pain and do things that hurt myself? Sure. But the reason why a parent doesn't want their child to be hurt is because it's out of love. And if we don't, if we don't personalize God as a father who loves us, it's very easy to miss his intention behind it. So is, is getting rid of sin for getting rid of sin's sake really all that compelling? I don't, I don't find it to be. Because uh, A, it has lots of benefits. But, but B, it kind of, it's handy for me to go like, if you just want me to be clean, it's easy to just make God a bully who's upset with me and then I can abstract him again and then just kind of resent him a little bit and kind of do what I like. It's, it's amazing how creative we can be in our rebellion <laughs> and wanting to be in control. At least I'm creative. So, there's this idea that we have a moral therapeutic God <laughs> that, uh, that just wants us to be clean. So what is the inverse of that? And this is something we fight for in our church a ton. And if you've been around a while, you may have heard a term called relational theology as opposed to a moral therapeutic theology. We have a relational theology. And so that's a term you can remember just because we think about it, talk about it a lot. And it's not that complicated. All that it is is just making sure that we keep treating God as a person who loves us. It sounds so simple. Uh, but as soon as that gets lost, things get messed up really, really quickly. And so it's we have a huge amount of intentionality in our church to go, okay, how does love, in the fullest definition of what that is, infect every aspect of our theology? Because as soon as love is gone, it will get messed up in some way. 
it's a pretty good thing to fight for if we're fighting to understand as a community who God is and all that he has for us, and he defines himself as love. Like, not that he's good at love, he is love. And so it feels really messed up if we remove love as the motivation of what he's doing ever. So let's remind ourselves of that this morning, a relational theology. I want to, uh, I want to read another Bible verse. You can put it up there for me. It's Revelation 19, 7 to 8. And I think this is talking about the future, um, about the coming of Jesus and all that, this blessed hope as it talked about in Titus, this blessed hope of the future. And I think it's going to help us understand the motivation for why we would not sin or why we would live an upright and godly life and how grace uh, makes that happen. Grace, how grace actually transforms our motivation, not just keeps us cleaner. This is very, very important. We talk about it a ton. But how do we have, how do we have grace transform our hearts, like from stone to flesh? I don't, what grace isn't is a moral standard that then we have to uh, ascribe to by our own power. Grace is way more, way, way more powerful than that. It claims to transform us from the inside out. It claims to make us new. Uh, I talked last week about the idea of redemption. Redemption is a very beautiful, complicated word because it's, it isn't uh, God forgets all your sin. It's he knows all of it intimately and then dies for that and transforms what was, what was uh, broken into something new. It's a transformation as opposed to a wiping and rebuilding, right? Which is very important. Like, you could use metaphors of being washed clean and white as snow, and I, the, the metaphors fall apart at, at some point. But more theologically accurately, he would transform something, and he would make it new. So I'm interested on how grace actually transforms our hearts so that this whole conversation about why we would live purer, more holier like lives practically, like, no, I won't do that. No, that's wrong. All these things that we kind of avoid in the church a lot because we're so scared to talk about religion and rules. We are, right? We're so scared to talk about rules because we really know it's not the point. However, we can fall into a ditch of never talking about rules and never talking about certain standards of living um, out of fear of preaching a religious gospel, but at the same time, something in my heart goes, if I was really in love with Jesus and my heart was changed, and I knew how saved I was, and I knew how forgiven I was and loved I was, I really hope that would affect the way that I live. And I really hope that I would be more faithful to who loves me practically in life. So let's read this Revelation verse and see what this says about it. <clears throat> Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. Stop there for a second. So this is talking about uh, the main metaphor used in scripture for the church, you and me, as a collective we, and as individuals in many ways, is that the church is compared to the, uh, the bride. And marriage is this really amazing reflection of Christ's relationship with the church, or with humanity. And so, um, this is saying, uh, and his bride has prepared herself. How? How has she done this? For she has been given, look at the word given, for she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. Okay, now watch this. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. This is tricky to understand. Have I been given it 
Or has or have I prepared myself with my good deeds? Blah. This is hard. This is really hard to get. Because I want to know one or the other. I want to know, is it about me, is it about me trying? Or have, have I been given something? And we will fall into the heresy, actually, if we don't live in the tension of both. We have to live in the tension of both. And so how do we do that? Um, uh, just something quick about clothing that's good for you to know as we unpack this is that clothing in scripture is meant to reveal things. It kind of feels like the opposite, right? Po- you'd think clothing was supposed to cover things. Actually, clothing more accurately is revealing who you are. Even Adam and Eve were given in, you know, new clothes even after they sinned and recommissioned to go work and till the earth and stuff. And priests wear certain robes and kings wear crowns and uh, Elijah's tunic. Like if you think of that, some of these Bible stories, like uh, Clothing, uh, clothing says something about who you are to everyone looking at you. Like what you wear is how you're represented to the world. And it reveals something about who you are, but probably more accurately, whose you are. Like it's, uh, it's showing the world what's true about the inside. And, and, and it's, 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 yeah, it's revealing something. So in this passage... Fine, the fine linen rep- is, is the good, the white pure <laughs> linen that we've been clothed with is represented by the good deeds of God's holy people. So there's so much tension in that because uh, <laughs> why would we do good deeds and live sin-free lives and say no to ungodliness? Well, what the scripture is saying is that those, those decisions that we make are out of a faithfulness to a groom. And they're out of a deep love and affection for someone else. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think this way a lot. Like, is our affection for God... We, 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 okay, I'll, we'll use a human example. If you're thinking about an actual engaged couple, there's a, there's a faithfulness that... Like, you're not, <laughs> one of the members of that couple isn't wondering how far they can push the line and what's still allowed to do, that, that like, what's, what, how far can I push my unfaithfulness and it, we're still okay? Like, everyone knows that's absurd. You're driven, you're driven by a desire to be close and be faithful, and the love that you've been extended and the affection you've been given is the driving force of why you wouldn't be unfaithful. And I just think a lot of the time we don't think that way. We go, well, how far can I go and still be okay and be a good person and make it to heaven, like point E of our therapeutic model. It's just not, that's just not what's going on at all. We're here to have our hearts transformed by the love and grace of a real loving father. That's what we're up to. We're not here to learn new lessons. Man, I fall into that so fast. So, uh, with the time that I have left, just go a little deeper, because it does say that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's a very practical verse. We don't talk about this much. It's like, how do we say no more often? How do we say no more to the things that rob us of our intimacy with God and our relationship with Him? So here's what, here's my best, my best take at it, is, uh, have you ever been extended grace by like a person? Like someone's just gone over the top, 
and returned maybe your evil with kindness? Have you ever experienced that where you're like, man, I really treated you poorly, and, then, and you know it, and then they, they didn't just say it was okay, like they returned it with uh, more than you deserved? Has that ever happened to you in real life? Uh, a, good, a good example of this is just a silly little example that happened in my parents' living room the other day, but um, Jessica lives with uh, uh, a girl named Leah in the basement suite of my parents' house. And Leah, like if you look up the definition of sweet, you'd find Leah. Like it's just, she's so sweet and so kind and uh, just doesn't have a, a malicious bone in her body. This is the kind of girl she is. And, um, and what's really hilarious is that Jessica likes to torment Leah uh, by scaring her as often as possible. <laughs> just to bring her around corners and there's Instagram story, you know, catalogs of her just scaring Leah for no reason. Uh, just because Jessica enjoys it. <laughs> it's not wrong. I'm, it's fully accurate. And so... Uh, What's hilarious about that is Jessica's constantly making digs and poking fun at Leah because it's just, it's so funny to see how she can't be mean. She couldn't be mean if she tried. And it's, it's almost, it feels like that's why it's fun to poke Leah a little bit, just to see how kind she'll be in response. It's so funny. The best example of this is uh, um, Jessica said something to the effect of like, thanks for letting me scare you, Leah. I love it or whatever. And she's like, oh, thanks for letting me live here. <laughs> and she really meant that. Like she's really like, oh, I'll just say what I really think in my heart right now, and it's, I'm just grateful to be here. It's just it's the most adorable thing ever. And uh, it was funny to watch Jessica's face go, oh, like, ugh, I feel, ugh. Oh, thanks for letting me live here. I was like, oh, I'm going to change. <laughs> it, but you see what I'm saying? Like, there's a, there's a, when you're extended grace, and you know you were wrong, and you know somebody just wants to be, sorry, Jessica, but you know you were wrong, and, uh, and then it's met with the opposite. Like, not just that's okay. It's met with the opposite. Yeah. There's something about, you, something about that that instructs you. Yeah. It's a funny word to use, I know. But it, it instructs you to say no, to un, to say no in, a way that's it's a, in a way that's motivated by a desire to be close with that person as opposed to learning what the rules are. Yeah. That is so important to know in our faith. We can get more intimate relationships. I kind of alluded to this before, but the idea is, what if somebody loves you and you know you don't deserve it, which I think is every time, and uh, they know your flaws, and they, know, like, they love you, your parents or your spouse or someone, and like, they see all of who you are and then love you anyway. There's something about that level of trust and desire for them to be gracious, actually, would be a good word, gracious to you, that instructs your living. More than just instructs it, it motivates it, which I guess is the same thing, despite your imperfections. So nothing will keep you faithful like being loved even though you know, you, know you shouldn't be, and even though you, know you don't deserve it. And your faithfulness is driven out of something that is, you can't take away, and it's so rich. And we can take it a step further, is that you know, it's one thing to be extended grace in a moment of when you know you <laughs> were a bad person or whatever. It's another thing to be loved even though you know you don't deserve it. And now you take that into a cosmic level of what God did. It's like, what if somebody died for you? Like, what if somebody was so desperate to make you righteous so that they could be with you forever in a perfect, in a perfect sense and was so committed to knowing you and you being holy uh, and being with him that he paid the price for that and justified you. And that what if your justification out of, a love, out of the love of God sanctified you and, 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 and 
eradicated sin and unfaithfulness because of the love story of it all. I think I was, I was, I was mentioning this last week, but I, I'm getting a little frustrated that sometimes I'm trying to articulate like I say the gospel. Maybe people haven't heard it before or whatever. And um, you know, somebody hears that for the first time and I'm trying to say it in a way that grips my heart in the way that it does. And the words just always fail me. And I'm getting so annoyed because I, I'm saying the thing that matters to me most and it doesn't seem to transform or change anything. And I'm, I, I don't really know what to do with this. It's just the way that I feel. I'm being honest with you. I, grace has to grip our heart somehow. Is there a progression to that? Yeah. It, does, it, does it happen all at once sometimes? I don't know. But if our pursuit isn't real change via an affection for the God that loves us, I think we'll fall into moral therapeutic deism almost immediately. And uh, I don't think it's that compelling. And it's not, well, I don't want to do that. It's not worth it. So I want to draw something to you as we you know, conclude. Um, you can put Titus back up there for me. And maybe something will jump out at you now as we read this, after we've talked about it a little bit. Let's just start in um, verse 13 again. Uh, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Like, do you you hear that? It's like, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, like a bride. And then the bride's eager to do what is good because of course she is. And see how it's all jumbled together like that? Like, it's so much more beautiful than what do I do and why and how far can I push the line? It's just not about that. And so as we're talking about sin today, and how to be sanctified from it. My prayer is that God would speak to you. Maybe there's something in your life that you know God's like, hey, I, you know, I'd like that to, can you, I guess the shoulder, can you maybe not do that anymore? And I think we hear him saying that, and we go, come on, like, just, just give me a break. <laughs> and I, sometimes it's a helpful exercise for me to be like, well, I just have to look into his eyes for a sec and just personalize him again, because that is not about scrubbing behind your ears. That's someone who wants to know you and walk with you and be closer to you. Man, it's easy to um, forget that. A- analogy that I used to use in, in youth group back in my youth pastor days was we used to talk about, p- kids would always know, like, am I allowed to do this or am I allowed to do this? And is it, is this, does this count as sin? And what if it's not this far? And they always wanted to know where the lines were. And then there's this line, you know, somewhere of like, this is sin and this isn't. And then there's like this little no man's land on either side. You know, and it kind of depends who's watching her and what environment you're in. And there's this little gray area of a bunch of different things in life. Alcohol, you know, uh, dating, and all these little gray areas. And students would always want to know how wide no man's land was. (laughs) And I remember thinking, okay, we could talk about the nitty-gritties of that if you want. But it just doesn't feel like the point. What if, what if you were, like, driven by an affection and a love for someone else? And you sprinted away from the line. Like, that to me feels like a better definition of what uh, sinlessness motivated by actual intimacy and personality would look like. Like, you'd run away. And so the discussion is the problem. We're having the wrong discussion about what counts and what doesn't. Who is after you? Like, what if we asked who questions? And so that's grace to me. Grace is a deeply personal thing. And so there's a way to talk about this that's about the mechanics of it and about how powerful he is and about how he's capable of doing it all. And it's all very interesting and wonderful and there could be an equally good sermon on that. But this series, we're looking at grace in a deeply personal way. 
And I don't know what, what God would be asking you to run from these days. But I think it would be towards him, not away from sin. Does that make sense? I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Father, we thank you that you... Uh, we thank you that your grace is extended by you, and it's not just some high and lofty thing to uh, ascribe to. And Lord, we just ask you to speak to our hearts this morning. We know that you're a living God who's living and active and, and, and can speak. And um, <clears throat> Lord, I pray that the issue of sin and righteous living wouldn't be about rules and behaviors, but they'd be expressions of our faithfulness to you, and they would be oh man, small tokens of our gratitude for all that you've done. Father, I pray that you would teach our church, teach every heart here how to be motivated by relationship and love, not by duty or obligation. And would you help us redeem the concept of righteous living from just being religious piety to being a, to being clothed in white so that we can display to the world your beauty, not ours, yours. You gave us those clothes. You gave us those white linens. And I pray that the reality of that would just rest in our hearts. And so we're grateful for the opportunity that we have in mornings like today to come and think about these things and praise you for the reality of that. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.